Hey, everybody. Welcome to A Friend in Me, the podcast about friendship, culture, and the kingdom of God, all through the lens of Pixar. Today, we're talking about one of Pixar's hidden gems, probably the least popular, least talked about Pixar movie, I would say, and that's The Good Dinosaur, directed by Peter Sohn in 2015. It got overshadowed by Inside Out. They came out the same year, and The Good Dinosaur was certainly more forgettable, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to discuss. It's a pretty emotional movie. It does make me tear up when I watch it, and I think it has some good moments. I enjoyed talking about it with my good friend Nate Ryan, who is a pastor and had a lot of good things to say, and this conversation that we had just went to show me how much benefit there can be talking about films with people, even if they're kind of average movies that don't blow you away, there can still be a lot of insight that you get when you discuss it with friends. So again, I urge you, talk about films with your friends after you go see them. Don't just consume them, but engage with them. Coming up on the podcast, like I mentioned last time, I do plan on doing a live stream episode about the film Elemental, but I'm going to delay it. I was originally hoping to do it with the when it was still in theaters, but now we're going to move that to when it releases on Disney+. Plus. So you will hear about that in the near future, a live stream episode with of Elemental. After the good dinosaur in the Pixar canon comes Finding Dory. So if you're someone who likes to watch the movies in advance, please watch Finding Dory in the next couple weeks because that will be our next episode, hopefully coming out in the last week of August. Now we have here The Good Dinosaur. So I'm going to read to you the summary of The Good Dinosaur before we jump into my conversation with Nate. Luckily for young Arlo, his parents, and his two siblings, the mighty dinosaurs were not wiped out 65 million years ago. When a rainstorm washes poor Arlo downriver, he ends up bruised, battered, and miles away from home. Good fortune shines on the frightened dino when he meets Spot, a Neanderthal boy who offers his help and friendship. Together, the unlikely duo embark on an epic adventure, to reunite Arlo with his beloved family. So there you have it. That's the synopsis of The Good Dinosaur. I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and Nate Ryan. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of A Friend and Me. I'm here with my friend Nate Ryan. How you doing, Nate? I'm doing awesome. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's exciting. We're talking about The Good Dinosaur, which is probably Pixar's least known film. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a lot more obscure. Yeah, much, much less box office, for sure. Yeah, although Elemental right now just had the lowest opening of any Pixar movie ever, so lower than Good Dinosaur here. But yeah, I feel like when I bring up Good Dinosaur, people say, oh, that's Pixar? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different studios that, like, have similar animation styles now that, you know, you don't, I think, are at a point where you no longer just assume something is Pixar. So we're digging into one of the hidden gems, one of the un, it's not discussed as much as most of the other ones, but I do think it'll have some good conversations that come from it. So thanks for coming on, Nate. If you could tell 
our audience a little bit about what you're up to nowadays, and then we can get into talking about our friendship. Sure. Well, I am an ordained minister in the American Baptist Churches USA, and I serve as the pastor of a small country church here in West Springfield, Pennsylvania, which, if you're looking at a map, is the very northwest corner of the state of Pennsylvania. You cannot get more northwest in the state. Nice. Uh, Close to the very corner, basically. Yeah, yeah, our, yeah, we're, you know, our, the lake is three minutes north of us and the state of Ohio is five minutes west. And I've been here for almost two years. It'll be two years on August, in, on August 1st. And my partner in crime, Jenny, and uh, my wife, we, we got married almost two years ago as well. So yeah, a lot of milestones coming up. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for joining us, Pastor Ryan. I'm excited <laughs> uh, to have this conversation. And yeah, Nate and I became friends at Gordon. And I was trying to, over the last couple of days, piece together when we, like, I know we've had a lot of smaller interactions over the years. I was trying to think when we became closer friends. But do you remember any, like, first impressions or how that came to be? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I was, I was trying to piece that together too. And it was, it was, it was a little bit challenging. Like, I think that we certainly knew of one another and were like, friendly acquaintances throughout all of our time at Gordon, because mm-hmm. especially because we just, we had a lot of mutual friends. I'll let you describe how your perception of this, but like my perception of you, Porter was like, ah, oh, you know, that's like this guy who's like really involved in res life. Who's, you know, I, I looked at you as kind of like a person that had a lot of friends. So I, you know, I was always like, man, like I wish I could, I wish I got to know this kid Porter more because on the surface, it seems like we have a lot in common. But it wasn't until I think our senior year when we were put in the senior seminar class in biblical studies that we really started to like interact more and get to and actually hang out. Part of that was just because of how fruitful that class was. You know, it's still one of the top three best classes I feel like I've ever taken because of a small, intimate setting with only six people. It was just a cool. We got to go to Panera all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. go to Panera with professors, go to the castle with professor, game, board game cafe. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I also think the fact that you and I both lived in the HUDs our senior year. Yeah. So yeah. at Gordon, there's kind of, we were just talking about this, actually. There's kind of these nicer dorms, and then there's kind of the, the yeah, the, the dorms that have a lot of heart and a lot of community, but maybe aren't as physically desirable as the other dorms and we were both seniors living in the huds so you were in wilson i was in lewis and i think that bonded us too because i would come over and hang out with joe and then we would play video games together i remember watching the nfl draft you being the jets fan and we talk fantasy football we're in the we're in fantasy football together and give each other a hard time as Patriots fan over here and the jets fan nate (laughs) but hey hey the the tides are about to flip I don't know, man. (laughs) Like, I don't know if we're going to beat any other team, but I'm always confident we'll beat the Jets. So Aaron Rodgers, man. I know, I know. That's exciting. It's exciting that, yeah, new things are happening. But, yeah, I think the first time I remember interacting with you was, like, I walked into Drew. I was hanging out with Tori or Jonathan or something, and then you and Tori were in some big debate. And I don't even remember what it was, but it was just funny because – you were getting so passionate about a topic that I was, it was, yeah, it was like so fun to see you uh, debate. I always have appreciated your desire to have good, deep conversations and you like to go back and forth with people. I feel like. 
Yeah, I mean, I've you know, I've I've learned that you know back back then there wasn't much listening going on. It was a lot of I want to point out the flaws in your philosophy and your worldview and stick it to you when I when you realize that I did. There's there's a lot more humility, a lot more grace, and a lot more listening that I'm you know I'm trying to cultivate. Uh, I, th- well, I think that's I'm good. Much better job now, but but yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Well, and I think we can both thank our professors at Gordon for helping us develop intellectually and in humility. I am excited to have you on here. I know you've been on a film podcast before, is that right? And that's true. The classic Film Jerks podcast that was on for 10 years and I became an, an avid follower of that. I just reached out to them and asked me, asked them if I could be on and they said, sure. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I love films and it's kind of a, kind of a recent discovery in my life during the, the height of COVID during the shutdown. My, my COVID hobby that I developed was going through the American Film Institute's top 100 movies of all time. So I watched all of them in six months. And ever since that, wow. it's just opened this borderline obsession with film and film criticism and theological film criticism in particular. Yep. That is a whole world that I didn't know existed. Did you take a class in seminary about? I did. Uh, at Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, I took, took a class on theology and film as well. Well, and shout out to Boston College, because when I took Theopoetics, a different class there, when I was in, at Gordon-Conwell, that's what launched this podcast was that class. So. Nice. Boston College has helped uh, helped this podcast form. So, yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad we share that love of films. And, wow, I'm impressed that you watched the top 100 in six months. That's pretty cool. I mean, there was nothing much else to do. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, and, of course, number 64 is The Good Dinosaur. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I don't think that made the top 100. But... It is a good film that we're going to talk about. And, hey, it's in the top 100 Pixar movies because there's only been 27. So let's dig into The Good Dinosaur. Like I said, I feel like people don't know this one very often. So listeners, hopefully you've watched, uh, you can go and watch this before listening to the whole episode. Or if not, hopefully we'll inspire you to give it a watch. But, yeah, Nate, what stood out to you this viewing about The Good Dinosaur? Well, I mean, overall, I liked it. I was instantly struck uh, just in the opening scene by these incredible incredible landscapes you know if you can imagine it right it's and if you've seen the film right we're, we're talking prehistoric era where there is not much human footprint or innovation scientific innovation going on at least not beyond an agrarian society so we're, we're looking at vast landscapes of creation that are that are really untouched in this pixar world and it's some of the most beautiful animation that I've seen in any Pixar film. I, you know, I don't know if you want to comment on that, Porter, but yeah, that, that's that immediately struck me. Yeah, I think in, definitely in terms of the backgrounds and the landscape, it's incredible. And I think is it implying this is happening in like the American West? At least some of the characters seem to give that vibe, but I feel like some of the landscapes gave me that vibe too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at one point you've got like buffalo, bison, you know, running through the plains. So yeah, I, I, yeah, you know, that, that could be so. Well, any, yeah, anyway, I also felt like some of the shots of rain and water. I mean, Pixar has always been innovating around how they do water ever since like Finding Nemo, but I feel like the water in the film struck me too. Uh, how well animated it was. And there's multiple kind of flood scenes, which are, Pretty awe-inspiring, the way they were able to animate these massive floods. And some of the shots look pretty realistic. The animation 
is maybe a little more photorealistic than some of the other Pixar movies, especially with the landscapes. But it is really stunning. Yeah, yeah, photorealism. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's the right the right way to describe it. Yeah, it, it's almost like they were working off of images or a canvas that they kind of cut and pasted from the mm-hmm. real world and just like put it put it into an animated world. Oh no, and I also really like the scene with the fireflies and the scene with the birds where they're running into the flock of white birds and they go flying. Those are both great nature shots too. Yeah, I was going to mention yeah. the uh, the firefly scene. Just a uh, yeah, beautiful display of you know, of light flickering, uh, in all these different places across the, yeah, once again, across this, the night sky and this landscape. Really great. I gave the film three stars on Letterboxd. So, you know, to our listeners, Letterboxd is a social media platform for cinephiles like us. Yeah. And, and that's kind of my baseline rating that I give any film that keeps me uh, engaged throughout that I don't have any visceral qualm or, or criticism about that would lead me to like roll my eyes or get frustrated. That was a well-told story, a uh, story of the classic hero's journey who finds himself in an odd place and has to overcome obstacles in order to find his way home. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know how much you want to dive into the, the themes at this point, Porter, but you know what, if there was one big critique that I, I would give the film that kind of prevented me from kind of putting it in the upper echelon of the, of the Pixar films that I've seen, it's that they seem to be trying to balance too many central themes that they're trying to get across to the viewer, whether, you know, whether it's the constant theme of fear and overcoming fear about family and belonging and, you know, what your nature and purpose is in life, all of these different kind of mm-hmm. philosophical questions are, are all being asked and uh, at the same time. And what, what I think it leads to is a detraction from all of them. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you said, so a lot of Pixar movies, they'll come together at the end and you kind of realize, oh, like this is what it was all getting at. And I think you can see the moments they're trying to do that, but it doesn't necessarily land as well, for sure. Yeah, I gave it a two and a half on Letterboxd, so a little lower than you. I also think the animation is incredible, uh, like you said, and the story itself isn't a bad story, but it, it does feel relatively generic compared to a lot of the other Pixar films in terms of it doesn't strike me as particularly thoughtful or creative of a plot. And the one thing I was thinking about is a lot of the Pixar movies that involve animals they need to be that specific animal. It's like Finding Nemo could only be done with fish because of the like the ocean and what that represents in the movie. Or Ratatouille, it has to be a rat for that to fit the themes of the film. But with The Good Dinosaur, I feel like you could have made that movie with any species, really. Like It doesn't feel like him being a dinosaur is central to the plot in any way, which, I mean, it could still be a good movie without that, but that's just an example of why I feel like is kind of random. Even the title uh, yeah. is pretty unoriginal. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Unlike, like, I mean, you mentioned Nemo. Unlike Nemo, where like, yeah, the fish are fish, whether it's in the ocean or whether it's it's in the fish tank in yeah in Australia. Yeah, of course they you know they have faces, they talk, right? But their worldview, the way that they move and interact in in the, in the universe of the film they're in, isn't anthropomorphized. Yeah, yeah. Whereas here in the good dinosaur, you have the dinosaurs who are, you know, they're farming, they're, farming. they're yeah. building, they're storing grain in silos. They're basically human beings. So yeah. you could, in theory, like if you're going to anthropomorphize an animal in that sort of way, you could put any animal in that position. 
and it, didn't, yeah. it doesn't have to be a dinosaur. I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, that it, I think that is one of the things about the movie that I was like, eh, like, and uh, like I also said, the title, the good dinosaur. I mean, come on. Could you have thought <laughs> something a little, I don't even, I mean, is it just trying to say that he didn't, he questioned whether he was good or I don't even know why good is a part of it. I don't know. Being, being good, being like pure or moral isn't necessarily like a theme that's tackled head on. So yeah. Yeah. I, I bet know. you that was workshop for a while and it was like, they had like the scared dinosaur or something and people were like, they're not going to want to watch the scared dinosaur or something. I don't know. So they're like, just put the good dinosaur. But yeah, like you said, animation's great and we'll dig into some of the themes that I do find resonant. And I will say that I remember watching it in theaters and crying towards the end. And I don't think I've fully cried again watching it, but I did feel the tears start to well. At a particular point, which we'll probably talk about, but overall, it's not Pixar's best, but it's still, I mean, the fact that this is lower tier Pixar just goes to show how high quality Pixar generally is, because this is not a bad film by any means. But And Peter Sohn, the guy who directed this, he's only directed two, and it's this one and then Elemental, which just came out. So they did give him another chance, even though Good Dinosaur didn't get great reviews uh he had another shot and i feel like elemental is pretty good have, have you seen elemental or not i yet? have not no okay not yet well yeah I, i'm glad they gave peter Sohn another shot and and he actually is the one peter Sohn is the one who does the voice of emil from ratatouille and socks the cat from lightyear so he's also a voice actor which is cool but anyway the, before i get to my cultural piece I realized I forgot a conversation I wanted to have earlier about Spot. So in this movie, they have the pet character or like the sidekick animal character, which a lot of Disney movies have, is actually played by this prehistoric humanoid Spot. So he doesn't speak, but he is clearly human. But he walks on all fours, grunts and hunts and does a lot of these animalistic behaviors so it's almost a reversal of yeah the trope of humanizing animals they're like animalizing this this human i'm wondering what do you think about that because i think for some reason it just sits poorly with me like i don't love it it's just a little uncomfortable at times but i'm wondering if that is because it it messes with what i was taught about like evolution and humanity as a kid and like it's just odd for me to see a human being behaving as the animal in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, I, I, I think it, I do find it very interesting that in our culture and our society, we have become so accustomed to anthropomorphized animals in mm-hmm. cartoons, in media, in whatever. But the moment that, yeah, the moment that a human being is subjected to, you know, what, what we would de- describe as kind of primal animalistic tendencies or characteristics, mm-hmm. that's uncomfortable for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's, that's, that's an, that gets into the kind of the heart of kind of the anthropology. Like what does make, what makes a human a human? Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, and, 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 you know, we could have hour, hours and hours long discussion on, on that, on that topic. But I think, I think it's interesting that, you know, obviously, like clearly, uh, this film is trying to present an alternative reality, an alternative 
you know, if you subscribe to some form of macro evolution, right, a different sort of a different sort of random survival of the fittest result, where instead of human beings being the ones that uh, develop the ability to make scientific innovations like tilling Mm -hmm. fields or Mm -hmm. building silos, it's the dinosaurs that do that. And I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in a in a church background where the holding intention, you know, modern modern evolutionary biologies theories about the origins of human civilization and the Christian faith weren't competed with one another. Uh, I, you know, I mm-hmm. it wasn't it, it wasn't a conversation that re, that really struck me was one that was something that that many Christians struggle with and that the church yeah. is yeah. wrestling with until I got to college. And, you know, and we, we took a class called the Scientific Enterprise, which presented a bunch of different theories of creation, theistic evolution being one of them. And that was my first real interaction with Christians who were really struggling with these sorts of questions. Yeah. Whereas I grew up Southern Baptist, so evolution was a no no. <laughs> but then, like in my I was saying to you earlier in my private high school, I did take AP biology. So I learned about evolution, but then we also watched a bunch of videos that were kind of poke, trying to poke holes in the concept of macroevolution. But I don't think we were told like, Oh, evolution is a lie in high school. I think it was more just like, let's look at this from multiple perspectives, which is, is good. But yeah, it's interesting to think about why does spot as a character make me a little uncomfortable, but it's also interesting at the end of the movie when he kind of finds these other humans and becomes like kind of almost adopted into their family. He goes from walking on all fours to walking on two legs. So it's almost like his family, the being in a family is helping him be more human. Oh yeah. That's interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't catch that, uh, but I, I'll have to, I'll have to look back on that again. But if that's, yeah, I, I, if that's the case, if he like, I mean, he's walking on all fours the whole movie, right? Mm-hmm. If he's all of a sudden making us walking on two feet, that mm-hmm. like, that's very, that seems like a very clear intentional move by the creators of the film. I, yeah, I think that that would be a good interpretation then. Like, you know, your presence in community, your sense of belonging in a family, in a community with other people ultimately is what moves us forward in our evolutionary process or our sure. you know, our ability to to become more fully human which from a christian perspective i would you know i i kind of critique the the whole idea of you know progress being human progress being linear to begin with but but there yeah. is a sense of like of like you know as we become more human as we come become more like jesus and and become more holy as he is holy you know our telos that we are moving towards the intended community with one another and with God that he has designed us for. There you go. So being in community helps you stand up on on two spiritual legs <laughs> instead of four. Yeah. That is perhaps the most unique thing about this film, as I think it's the only movie I've ever seen where the animal sidekick was a human. <laughs> like you said, the other parts about it, like there's a lot of Lion King similarities and other stories that we've heard before. But bouncing back to my cultural uh, thoughts of the film. Sorry that we took that sidetrack to spot, but I thought it was worth talking about. Let's talk about the cultural implications of this movie, Nate. What are some things that you think our culture could learn from this film? I mentioned just a moment ago that the dinosaurs in this movie are, in a sense, 
pseudo humans who live in an agrarian society. So they're farming, they're collecting grain and storing it in silos. They have chicken coops, you know, Arlo's, Arlo's task that his parents give to him is feed the chickens every day. You know, in the, in the beginning of the film, you get the sense that Arlo's parents are kind of imposing on these kids the idea that your worth and your value in this world is in your ability to accomplish tasks and specific to achieve something. The prominent uh, phrase they keep using is make your mark. The way that you make your mark you prove yourself in this world, prove yourself as a as a contributing member of this family, even through your ability to execute chores and tasks, be able to have like a, a checklist of I've done this, this and this. I think that that's more or less the culture that we're steeped in here in the United States. A lot of the time, for better or for worse, we live in a meritocracy where that's kind of the standard by which the world defines how comparable you are, what your value and your worth is. Mm -hmm. What have you achieved? Mm -hmm. But by the end of the film, it seems to challenge us and provide an alternative. The way you make your mark is the way that you respond to adversity. Uh, which Arlo faces many, many times in his journey home. And particularly, how do you respond to fear when you're afraid? Do you cower or do you overcome those those fears in order to get to the beauty on the other side? Yeah, the phrase that Arlo's dad uses. So I think if there's a if there's a message for our culture, yeah, it's the idea that your value and worth is not defined by what you by what you achieve. It's Mm -hmm. defined by how you respond. I think that that's that's a pretty poignant message in the film. Yeah, that's great. Nate. And it's funny because I didn't really pick up on that fully at the end of the film when he does get to make his mark and put his footprint on the silo. I kind of just thought it was like, Oh, now you've accomplished something too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, because you survived and you got back here. But yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, it's good to think of that as maybe a value shift that the movie is presenting. It is odd to me at the beginning when it's like, what does Buck do? He oh he cuts down a like patch of forest with his tail, yeah. and then Libby is just like plowing the field, and her mom is like, "You can do it, Libby. Make your mark." And she's just watching her daughter like put her nose in the dirt and push. It's like, yeah, it was kind of an odd setup. But you're right. Maybe the movie's trying to say, yeah, like this is kind of a weird thing for the parents to just say, oh, like let's see which kid can accomplish something, and once they've done something to contribute to society, we're going to let them see their value. And yeah, maybe the movie is critiquing that perspective that it showed at the beginning, which I'm glad for you pointing that out because I didn't really notice that myself. So, I mean, not to say that recognition in the, you know, in value in this world isn't something that's ultimately earned. I think in some ways it is, but yeah, but instead of earning it through a checklist of things that you can, uh, bowl, you know, you can, you can proudly say, look at what I've done. It's a matter mm-hmm. of how did I respond in the, in the midst of, of the, of the different trials and circumstances that I, that my situation finds itself in. Do you think that Arlo's dad is too hard on him? Especially that we have that scene where Arlo doesn't kill the critter and then he's like, we're going to go on a walk. Like, you're going to get over it. Like, how are we supposed to view Arlo's dad? Because he's clearly a sympathetic character we're supposed to, like, love. But at that one point, it does seem like he pushes him or is a little too cruel. Arlo's dad, I think, embodies the struggle that so many parents struggle with. I mean, the fact that they are 
flawed human beings. They're not perfect. They or flawed dinosaurs in this or case. Or flawed dinosaurs. The right. flawed yeah. dinosaur. That should have been the title. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. The, the Arlo's dad, I think, wants the best for Arlo. He loves Arlo. He knows that ultimately, him conquering his fears is in his own best interest. I think that part of the struggle that Arlo's dad faces is that he wants Arlo to come to that realization on his own terms, whereas that's that's ultimately a something a discovery. How do you conquer fear that uh, Arlo has to make for himself? So it's mm-hmm. it's I think in that scene I think you see you see Arlo's dad a uh, very kind of a uh, narrow-minded belligerent like we have to this ha- we have to catch this this person for your sake cuz it's best for you. But yeah, then then Arlo twists his ankle and he looks back in that moment. His dad realizes, wow, you know, my love for my son is a higher priority and a in concern in this moment. I think that that's that sort of self-criticism, that, that kind of looking at yourself in the mirror and having to check yourself is something that I think, I mean, I'm not a parent myself, but I imagine that most parents can identify with. You know, it's interesting as we're talking about this, this is kind of moving to a future part of the movie, but. I'm wondering if, because, yeah, when Arlo's dad takes him on this journey to try to find the critter and then they, they turn around, but then the storm comes and this is what ultimately leads to Arlo's dad's death, which is a pretty... You mean uh, Mufasa's death? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty similar, the stampede versus the flood. I, it is very traumatic shot. Arguably a little more dramatic of a shot than the Lion King one, I think, when he's looking at his son and then get hit, gets hit by the water. Just the way it's animated is very dramatic. But I'm wondering if Arlo is blaming himself for his dad's death, but then he just that reflects itself in him projecting it onto Spot. Because when he sees Spot, he's like, oh, it was your fault that you killed my dad. But I'm wondering if because he his dad was like, oh, you haven't done this. We need to go out here. And. I'm wondering if Arlo was internalizing some of that guilt, but we don't see him say that. But mm-hmm. maybe that is why he is blaming the critter. That's a yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe his his uh, desire to to seek out vengeance against Spot and killing Spot is like a way of righting the wrong that he feels like in his soul he's committed because his inability to do that in the moment. It, you know, he's blaming is himself for for his dad's demise, um, which would, which if that's the case, that's just tragic. That's you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a, I can't imagine what kind of burden that would be to carry. But yeah, he doesn't explicitly say that or lead to that in some way in the film. But uh, that's a good question for sure. It's it's always good talking about these movies because then more depth is emerges as we discuss together, which is great. I think that this movie could be encouraging to Gen Z. Research has shown, I was just reading an article that was calling them the sensible generation in the sense that uh, Gen Z is drinking a lot less alcohol. Gen Z is taking less risky sexual behaviors. Gen Z is typically maybe staying, doing less of the major risks that were historically associated with being a teenager. On the other hand, part of the adolescent brain development needs to take risks because as you take risks and as you try out things that actually helps you build resiliency and helps you protect you against anxiety when facing those things in the future. So in this movie, we see that at the beginning, Arlo can't even handle feeding a chicken like the chicken. (laughs) He's terrified of this one 
or no, multiple chickens, a footless Fran and the other one. And he just can't handle ba- some basic tasks because of his anxieties and fears. And then throughout the movie, he thinks, oh, like, I have fear. I just, I wish I was like these other people I look up to who don't have fear. But actually, what he learns along the way is that even this huge T-Rex that tells him this epic story about fighting off these crocodiles says, no, I was afraid. Like, if you're not afraid when you're getting attacked by a crocodile, you're not alive. But he says, everyone's going to have fear. It's whether, like, you can get through it to the other side. And like Nate mentioned earlier, his dad says that you have to be able to get through fear in order to see the beauty on the other side. And so I think for Gen Z, risk-taking can seem not worth it, and people seem think they can make friends just in virtual spaces or and it's easier to kind of avoid risk-taking. But I think this film shows, hey, if, if we want to be well-adjusted adults, that means part of adolescence will involve doing hard things, taking steps outside of your comfort zone. Nate, you know I'm pretty passionate about LaVita, the ministry that Gordon runs, and I think that's a big heart behind why LaVita does what it does, because if we can help adolescents step out of their comfort zone in a safe environment, we're confident it'll help them down the line. So this the scene I really like is when the T-Rex tells Arlo, hey, go reroute those bison. They're about to run off the wrong direction. And he just trusts Arlo to go do that. And I think for adults to just empower Gen Z and say, no, I'm going to have you go do this task. I, I know you might not feel like you can do it, but I know you can. And I know that by facing that fear, you're going to grow from it. And this is coming from a uh, person who was a pretty timid and fearful teenager. I was definitely, I'm definitely part of that risk averse uh, crowd in many ways. So I appreciate films that challenge people to, to face their fear. Not that you won't have fear, but that you can face it and grow by walking through it. I think you're onto something so profound there. I mean, this, this idea that fear in and of itself is a, is a negative thing, right? Just because, just because you experience negative emotion does not necessarily mean that it's inherently, inherently bad. Just like anything else, fear is, is, is something that can be redeemed and can be used for a purpose. Mm-hmm. That makes you, uh, makes you a stronger and well-rounded and you, you use the word resilient, resilient individual. And I think that there's, I, I, I think there's definitely something to be said about the whole challenge by choice slogan, right? Like, you, you know, you should challenge yourself to step outside your comfort zone uh, once in a while in order to, because in the real world, you're not given the choice mm-hmm. when that happens, mm-hmm. right? The more, so the more that you do it by choice, the more resiliency you build and the more, uh, the more able to attack those bigger things, uh, in the, in the future. And the only character in the movie that claims to have no fear is Thunderclap, the evil pterodactyl. I don't know if that's saying anything specific, but each character that he meets along the way talks about fear in a different way. And Thunderclap's the one who says, I like was relevated in the storm and now I feel no fear. Like I, he's almost like a thrill seeker, but he is claiming, Oh, I have no fear at all. But then he's also, he's evil. (laughs) Although I guess if he's a, if he's a predator and his natural thing is to eat animals, maybe we shouldn't give him too hard of a time that he's trying to eat (laughs) meat. But anyway, the film depicts him as kind of, he's kind of deranged. 
but he's the only one who's claiming, oh, I don't have any fear. So yeah, maybe it helps you see that being able to acknowledge that you have fear, but also be willing to work through it helps you be more well-adjusted, less like thunderclap. (laughs) (laughs) So lots of, lots of good things about fear, but then you were also pointing out, Nate, that there's the theme of belonging and kind of family. We see that with Arlo's family and then we see it with Spot. I wonder if we can talk a little bit that, about that before we then go to our theological portion. Sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, you, you alluded earlier, Porter, to one part of the movie that you were, you were tearing up. Um, I'm not a crier in movies that, that it takes a lot for me to get there, but my wife who watched the, the film with me was tearing up at that, at the scene, uh, at the end, towards the end where Bot is, you know, sees this, this other human family and Arlo realizes that it's in Arlo's best or it's in Spot's best interest to for Arlo to just allow him to to experience this life of belonging as opposed to being alone in this world. And mm-hmm. he draws, you know, a circle, the circle around the family. I, I, and I thought, yeah, I mean, I, it, 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 it's interesting. You know, Arlo's desire is for him and Spot to be together, to be friends, mm-hmm. right? But ultimately, like there, the the movie does seem to be presenting this idea that being being together, being in community with people of your own kind, in this case, species, right? In your with your own species is 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 what ultimately leads to a more you know a more fulfilling life and a and a and a happier one uh, mm-hmm. than than even being with just your pal. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I I live in a parsonage that has three bedrooms, two baths. It's two stories. It's way too big of a house for me to live alone with my dog. Mm-hmm. Even as much as I love my dog. <laughs> right. That I would go crazy. I would go insane. I, I would my mental health, my ability to to, to do my job and, and, and live into the calling to which God has put in my life would be impossible if not uh, living, you know, and dwelling with uh, an, another person, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, my wife. So, yeah, and so being in community with other human beings matters. It's not, we weren't, you know, man was not created to live alone. And it's interesting because they both, they kind of connected because they both experienced loss. Like Arlo, we saw Arlo lose his dad and then Spot alludes to the fact that his family died by burying the sticks that he had represented in his parents. And so I think Arlo, because of his own loss, he's probably, that's probably why he's defensive. He doesn't want to lose spot. He doesn't want to let spot go because he's already experienced loss in his life. But he also knows that spot has experienced loss and seeing the joy spot has being with other humans again helps him realize, Oh, like even though I, will be sad to let him go. I want him to have the joy of connection again uh, that he lost. So yeah, it is a, it is a very sweet moment and you're right. You accurately guessed the time when I teared up. <laughs> I'm glad Jenny, Jenny joined me in that, but yeah, it is a, a sweet moment and kind of a pro adoption message. If you think about it, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. yeah, the value of spot having a, a mom and dad to, Raise him and they're not dinosaurs. They're, they're human. So, okay. 
time to dig into theological implications. And I'm talking to someone who's studied theology. So I'm expecting fireworks here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. You tell us uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the theological implications of the film? Well, for those people out there that know me, if there are any listeners out there that that know me personally, you know, it's it's kind of hard not to understand sort of my uh I my the theological tradition that I come from. I, I come from you know, I, I come from a Baptist church, but I've grown up with a bit of an Anabapt an Anabaptist bend, meaning, you know, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites. And a lot of their theology is is rooted in and grounded in the central idea that Jesus practices and calls his believers to a nonviolent uh, lived ethic. So, you know, so I am a I am without any sort of shame. I am a, a pretty staunch pacifist. And what we see what we see in the Gospels is, you know, is is a is a savior who does not take up the sword instead he tells his disciple at the time of his arrest put down your sword for those who live by the sword die by the sword in a very subversive way you have a savior who his kingdom is when all the other kingdoms of this world have been established by violence establishes his kingdom by laying down his own life and being the victim of violence and i see in the character of spot a a kind of a christ-like nonviolent ethic uh, which is which is funny considering that he's you know he's not cultured right in the in the you know we've talked a lot about that he you know he's 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 a primal he's a primate mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's a scene you know early in the film obviously okay so so Arlo we've talked about Arlo's dad eventually passes away he dies in this in this tragedy but when Arlo finds Spot again his First instinct is to blame Spot for his dad's death, and on multiple occasions he, you know, he he says he I want to kill you. Right? Mm-hmm. He makes references to wanting to kill Spot, but Spot responds to this not with tit for tat, not with any sort of meeting Arlo's vengeance and aggression with his own. Arlo saves Spot's life by at one point taking a rock away from his foot that's being Oh, you caught. mean Spot Spot saves Arlo, right? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Spot saves Arlo's life by saving, yeah, by by taking a rock from Arlo's foot that's been caught. And then at another point, Spot gives him food when Arlo mm-hmm. is left alone in the wilderness, has no where to turn, has no wilderness survival skills. Spot gives him food, gives him berries. So Spot returns Arlo's vengeance with radical kindness and it suggests that his kindness that kindness is ultimately a more powerful weapon than vengeance and you know spots kindness disarms arlo's vengeance and it turn in and it and it becomes the the impetus for what becomes a much uh, a, a deep uh, loving relationship uh, friendship with one another to the point where arlo says later on the film i love him and I think I, you know, I, that's just the, that's, that's the, the figure of Jesus that I see in the gospels and the one that I think he calls us all to, to, uh, to emulate. Yeah, that's, that's great. And you can see in Arlo's face as he's eating the berries, 
he wants to still be mad at yeah. Spot, but he's also so grateful for the food and 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 he literally says like, "Oh, I'm gonna get you, but can you bring me more berries first? But you can see he has been disarmed. Like right. his his anger has been replaced by gratitude. And it's interesting too because at the beginning of the movie, Arlo was supposed to kill Spot, and Arlo's nonviolence was almost seen as a weakness. Arlo did not want to kill the critter, and then it escaped, and that led to this whole thing. But like you said, this movie kind of demonstrates that it's, nonviolence is not a weakness. It's a strength. The most uh, radical political response, you know, radical ethic that you can choose to have among the options that are available to us in this world. I wholeheartedly believe that. How do you do watching that top 100 or just watching films in general? Because I feel like a lot of films do use violence, probably in a way that an Anabaptist would be uncomfortable with sometimes. Obviously, a lot of films are trying to critique violence, even though they're showing a lot of it. But some films almost seem to be okay or glorifying violence in a sense. How do you deal with films that have excessive violence on screen as a pacifist? Not clearly good dinosaur is not one of those films, but, but, but a lot of films are, and you're a film fan. So I, I mean, I, to be completely honest, I do not get uncomfortable watching mature content in on, on films because I, I, I see, I see the as a clear distinction. I don't interpret films of of like oh like you know from the I don't interpret films as like oh how is this how is our you know isn't it just a shame isn't this world going into hell in a handbasket? It's like they're abandoning they're abandoning the church they're abandoning Jesus by you know by participating in all of these different um, mm-hmm. sins of the flesh sex violence you mm-hmm. know, drugs whatever. I, I, I see it as, no, this is, this is the world we live in. Like this is, and, sure. and I'm, I'm called as a Christian to have, to, to present an alternative way of living that is ultimately more compelling. So I don't, I, I don't get disturbed or uncomfortable watching, watching films like that, that glorify violence. And they definitely do. I think that you're, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And sometimes violence, you know, violence is, in, in almost like a with with sort of similar it's similar to like pornographic sensitivities right it's like oh this is a you know we we do this as something that somebody can can get off on and and, and, and you know enjoy mm-hmm. in some sort of perverted sense but i i look at i watch films because i i learn from them what the world believes what the world mm-hmm. is teaching so they're incredibly informative in that sense yeah um i don't i don't spend time fighting what I think a film ought to be. I, I examine what, what must I do in response to uh, this sort of message in the culture being presented? I, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And there's films that are also presenting really problematic messages that don't include violence or sex. But typically I feel like the, the Christian response is, Oh no, it has sex and violence. Whereas even some of the ones that don't are also like, yeah, like you're saying, telling us what the world is teaching, but are also not true. Uh, but to engage yeah. it in love and and thoughtfulness is to still be willing to view it, but then determine, OK, yeah, like you said, how can how can I respond and how can this help me to know the world that I'm a witness to of um, of Jesus? Did, did Jesus 
Yeah. Did Jesus turn his face away when he was being flogged? Did Jesus turn his face away when he was being nailed and hung on the cross? I don't think so. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Jesus doesn't recuse himself from, you know, from from witnessing firsthand uh, the sin of this world, the brokenness of this world. I don't think we should either. Uh, yeah. Even if, I mean, uh, I, I definitely if, would say there's some people who a certain film might trigger particular temptations and that I think is good yeah. to avoid. But you're right. I think as a general rule, it should, we shouldn't set a general rule of like, oh, Christians need to hide their face to the darkness uh, or pretend that it's not there. We shine a light in the, yeah. in the darkness, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think though that there are Christians who like these revenge movies though. That's the maybe the more difficult thing is that some of these revenge movies that have a lot of violence, Christians might be like, yeah, get the evil guy, like, which is where the ethic of pacifism challenges people within the Christian tradition. Anyway, Jesus is not wielding the sword. He's not uh, he's not colluding with uh, the Romans or the Herodians uh, in order to in order to overthrow their power and and ultimately establish his own. Uh, that's, That's not the Jesus that we serve. Yeah. Well, look at that spot is a pacifist icon. <laughs> there you go. Spot from the good dinosaur. Put him on the board. <laughs> pacifist legend. Well, you got to, you compared the one main character to Christ. So I'm going to compare the other main character to Christ. But I do think we talked earlier about fear and Arlo facing fear. And in this movie, Arlo's dad has kind of said, oh, you're he says to him, you're me and more. So he's like, you're not just me. You have more that you bring to the table. And it's kind of confusing when he first says it. Don't really know what that means. But towards the end of the movie. Spot gets taken away by these uh, pterodactyls and. Arlo is trapped in these vines and he sees his dad as kind of a Mufasa-like ghost figure. <laughs> I've returned to Lion King connections here. but uh, And his dad again says to him, you're me and more. And he says, now go get that critter. And, and Arlo says, I'm going to save him because I love him. And this is a moment where love is the most powerful force within Arlo. So he's still scared. He's still a scared dinosaur. He's not, he hasn't become an unscared person. It's just that love is the primary thing that's going to drive his decision making in that moment. And so he goes charging up the hill. Lightning is striking all around him. And he used to be most terrified of storms because he literally lost his father in a storm. But love is now the thing that is compelling him. And this, there's this really cool moment where I think it clicked for me. What does that line, you are me and more mean, is when he sees this flood coming towards spot and it's the same type of flood that killed his own dad and his dad died trying to rescue Arlo his dad saved Arlo by throwing him up to a higher ground and now Arlo realizes oh my dad loved me and ended up you know giving his life to rescue me and then he jumps in front of spot willing to give up his own life to rescue spot and so I think it's a really beautiful image of of love driving out fear. And when you're motivated by love, it's going to be a stronger motivational factor than fear. Uh, I think that is um, 
really important for Christians to remember because we live in a society that often tries to stoke our fears and make us do certain things by fear. But we know we're called to be motivated by love. But then also we're meant to emulate the one who gave himself for us, right? And we're meant to jump in front of the violence the world has to offer, like you said, uh, jump in front of uh, the things that would harm fellow image bearers and and be willing to make sacrifices to care for others. So it's it's cool to see Arlo literally hurl himself in front of his greatest fear in order to serve his friend. And in the end, they both end up surviving, which is exciting and we're happy about that. But I think Arlo didn't know he was going to survive. Uh, he was probably willing to die in order to to save Spot. A greater love is no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. And that's, that's exactly what Arlo does. I think that's I think that's right on. So there you have it. Spot and Arlo, both Christ figures. <laughs> uh, comment, leave comments below if you want to fight that. But no. <laughs> Uh, no, that's good. I, I, I appreciate, and just like this happened with a couple of the other films too, this is one that I feel like having this conversation might bump it up to three stars from the two and a half. You know, you know, yeah. we should have, yeah, we should just, we should always watch films in community and discuss with one another. I think that we can get so much more out of them that way. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Uh, or is there anything else you want to say about the movie or any themes before we head to talking about which character we are? Oh, I'm good. I'm All good. right. Let's do it. So I actually have to <laughs> look up a, a name here, <laughs> which tells you what narrows it down. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. All right. So do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Me too. Hey. I'll go first. Or no, no, no. Go for it. You you say who I am first. We'll do that. All right. I I put you as uh as Arlo's dad. Okay. Why? Yeah, so say why now? Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, I you know I I when thinking about this question, I I I tried to make it a little bit a little bit lighthearted. I I, I hope you don't mind. Um, <laughs> no, I hope this good. doesn't. I hope this doesn't cut too far into your core for <laughs> No, I need um, this. I need this, man. <laughs> but. Anyone who knows Porter knows that he's a very competitive person. And we've talked a lot about, about the scene where Arlo's dad is, is making Arlo go with him to catch the critter. Uh, yes. Come on, he come is on. Narrow minded. He is, yeah. uh, yeah. he is focused, uh, and, and they're, you know, in his, his competitive spirit is coming out. We have to do this, right? <laughs> we have to catch this critter. But, and I think Porter at the, you know, in a similar way can at times, let his competitive spirit distract him from the effects that that competitiveness can have on the relationships with people that he loves. But that's good, uh, just like Arlo's dad, to Porter's credit, once he turns around and realizes yeah. that some sort of personal uh, line has been crossed, his love for, for his friends, his family went out ultimately. And he re- he's able to compartmentalize the competitiveness and recognize that there are more important priorities in this world than winning sometimes. Uh, and, and Arlo's dad does the same thing. Uh, he cares good, for spot good. when, or he cares for Arlo when Arlo, uh, twists his ankle. So 
Yeah. That's what I came up with, Porter. You're Arlo's dad. I love it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> no, it's so true. My number, my top two strengths in the Clifton Strengths Finder, number one is competition. And then number two is restorative. <laughs> so it's, it's very much like you said, like, come on, we got to get it. Let's go. And then looking behind him, like, oh no, <laughs> I have to restore this relationship. Yeah. Yeah. No, very true. Yeah. It's, it, I do get, I can get definitely narrow minded and, and single focused. Although I do think my college self, that was like the peak level of comp- competitiveness was in college. I'm a little more mellow now, but. Definitely still want to win. You know, I, it's funny. I thought about Arlo's dad for you as well, which I think his name is Henry, but that's not the name I was looking up. I was looking up a different name. So for you, I have you, Nate, as Butch. <laughs> so Butch is the tries the um the T Rex father. And the interesting thing is, and this I looked him up. I wrote good dinosaur T Rex, and it says he's the tritagonist. T-R-I-T-A-G-O-N-I-S-T, which is like, does that mean he's the third main character? The third? Maybe. So anyway, you're the tritagonist, Butch. And that's because Butch has this scene where he's sitting around a campfire and he's sharing his experiences with Arlo. And Butch demonstrates a desire for deep conversation. Like Arlo connects with the various creatures throughout the film, but I feel like the T-Rex family is the family where he's has the deepest connection and has an actual deep conversation about life and complexities of life and hardships. And I feel like you've always been a person who values deep conversation. And like you said, maybe now you've learned to listen more in those deep conversations, which is great. And then I also think Butch is vulnerable about his emotions. So even though he comes across as this like rough and tough guy, like I think you present yourself very confidently, but you're also willing to be vulnerable about things that are hard for you, things that you're afraid of. And I think Butch is a cool character because he shows Arlo, oh, no, being tough means you acknowledge that you're afraid or you acknowledge the hardships that life have brought your way. And I, I feel like when I talk with you, I always know if I ask you how you're doing or what's going on in your life, you'll be honest with me and just share, hey, here's the hard things, here's the good things. And I really appreciate that about you. And I, I feel like Butch uh, is the closest to that in the in the film. So, yeah, anyway, there you go. We're both the two older guys <laughs> in the film. <laughs> I mean, I consider myself, a you know, an old soul. I don't know about you. You know, people people tell me that I was born 20 years too late. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, I kind of turned that off. It's probably true. Okay. But I appreciate you. Appreciate you. uh you saying that that means a lot because uh, because, you know, that honesty, transparency and, you know, and, and yeah, and, and, and pulling off those those walls, uh, pulling back those walls that we put between each other and, and mm-hmm. to prevent us from deep, intimate relationships with one another. Loving relationships with with one another is something that I, I strive to do. So, yeah. And it's important as a pastor to be able to acknowledge your own, you know, frailty while also leading a church. That's a hard balance yeah. to strike, I'm sure. But anyway, I feel like Butch gives some pastoral support to Arlo <laughs> in the film. So grateful that you are leading a congregation. And I know there's the highs and lows of, of pastoral leadership, but uh, grateful that you're able to be in a role where you can pour into others as an old soul. <laughs> Thanks, Porter. Yeah. Well, 
that that's our conversation for good dinosaur. So another, like we said, one of the more underrated, under the radar Pixar films, but a lot of good to mine. Uh, so I, I really encourage you to watch it if you haven't. And if it's been a long time, give it another watch. It, it's definitely worth it. And I trust that you can learn something from Arlo and Spot. Thanks so much, Nate, for uh, being on. Thank you, Porter. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, agreed. All right. Take care, everybody. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation on The Good Dinosaur. I had a lot of fun talking with Nate about that movie. And like I said, I think talking about it increased my rating, helped me to see a little bit more of the value of that film. So thank you, Nate. And thank you to those of you who listened. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the movie's portrayal of overcoming fear. There's a line that Henry, Arlo's dad, says towards the beginning of the movie when they see the fireflies in the field. Uh, Arlo is scared to go out with his dad in the dark, but eventually they get to this field where there's a ton of fireflies and Arlo is able to delight in the light of the fireflies, but he was only able to do that because he was willing to venture out in the dark with his dad. And his dad has this line where he says, sometimes you got to get through your fear to see the beauty on the other side. Sometimes you got to get through your fear to see the beauty on the other side. That made me think of a story from the book of Numbers where God has promised the Israelites that they will inhabit the land of Canaan. But of course, there are these large people, there's these nations of really large men that the Israelite spies are afraid of. So what happens is 12 spies are sent into the land of Canaan, and they all see how luscious the land would be, how it would be a very good place for the Israelites to live. But 10 of them are terrified of the people they see. And they say, there is no way we can do this. In Numbers 13, it says, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And so here, they see something beautiful. They see something that has been promised to them by God that would be desirable to take, but they don't think they can. The fear is stronger than their desire for the beauty. But there are two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who are brave enough to trust God and to trust that the beauty will be theirs for the taking. So here in chapter 14, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. I think there's a lot of times in life where the obstacles in front of us seem too daunting. 
And even though we know that God has a plan for us, that God has beauty that he desires for us to engage with, fear can often be our dominant emotion. And it can keep us from taking risks, keep us from stepping into the places where God would have us step into, and ultimately keep us from seeing the beauty on the other side. I know in my own life, I had a lot of fears and insecurities that used to control me. And one thing I was afraid of was failing. And I was also pretty afraid of camping, to be honest with you. And God led me to the ministry Levita, which involves camping and involves leadership that involves the potential for failure. And so stepping into that ministry was terrifying to me. And I almost quit the, my first summer. I also almost turned down the job when I was offered it because I thought it was so ridiculous that they would hire me to lead people through the woods. I thought, no, that's too terrifying. I'm not qualified. I'm not going to do that. But God continually told me, no, you are going to do that. You are going to lead these students through the woods and you're going to do it by my power. And so I obeyed God and it changed my life. There is so much beauty that I have encountered in the Adirondacks because I was willing to face my fear. So if you're listening today, there's probably something in your life that you're afraid of. I know there's things I'm still afraid of. And I just want to remind you that there is beauty that comes when you're willing to persevere through fear. I think so often in our culture, we're just told to avoid the things that scare us, and it's pretty easy to do so. But just like Arlo, if we don't move through the fear, we might miss the fireflies. We might miss the beauty. So trust God, like Joshua, like Caleb, believe that when God has made a promise to you, when God is seeking to bless you, and when God calls you to do something, that even if it's daunting, even if it's terrifying, and even if you think you're not qualified, if you take the step of obedience and are willing to believe in the beauty that God has for you, then you can push through that fear and God will show up. God will meet you in your perseverance. He has certainly met me. The Some of the most beautiful moments of my life have been spent on Levita trips directly facing my fear. So I hope that can be encouraging to you, and I hope that that message from The Good Dinosaur can stick with you. And, you know, Arlo doesn't really have a God figure in the film that he can trust, but obviously we do. We have God, we have the Holy Spirit who is with us. And so facing our fears is not just an individual thing that we do because it's good for our our ego or good for ourselves, but we do it because we know the Holy Spirit is with us and he can empower us to face those things. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope that was encouraging to you. And again, if you want to be ready for the next episode, please watch Finding Dory. That'll be our next movie that we tackle. Thanks again to Mario for his editing. Mario Gire is doing a great job editing the podcast. And thanks to my cousin Maggie Bishop for the great music that is the intro and outro to the show. 
God bless you all. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.